1: On this episode of Newt's World, corporate leaders and strategists constantly face life or death business wars. In the battleground of competitive business, there's no better way to win than to learn from victorious frontline commanders. There's a new book by James Farwell, The Corporate Warrior, Successful Strategies from Military Leaders to Win Your Business Battles, which details powerful and actionable strategies to conquer your competition while winning customer recognition and critical support for your brand. Here to talk about his new book, I'm really pleased to welcome my guest and longtime friend, James Farwell. He is a global security expert in information warfare, corporate strategic planning and communication, social media analytics, political media and strategy, cyber policy, cybersecurity, and cyber strategy. He has advised the US Department of Defense US Special Operations Command and the US Strategic Command. I also have to be honest that we both went to Tulane. We've been personal friends for years. He worked on my congressional campaigns starting in 1992 and is a very, very creative guy at advertising and at strategy. James. First of all, welcome.
4: Thank you, Newton. I'm glad to be here. I have to give my usual disclaimer, since you mentioned my government work, that my opinions expressed here are just my own and not those of the U.S. government.
1: And knowing you well, you have strong opinions. I'm going to ask you about a couple of things you've done that do not necessarily relate to the book, but that I think are just fascinating, because you're one of the most interestingly complex people that I know. When you went to Tulane, you got your bachelor's and you went on to get your law degree. But then you really became a lot of different things beyond a Lawyer. One of them was you developed a play, which I think opened in London, didn't you?
4: I did. And we had fun with that. It's actually been redone. And it will open after an opera that I've written called The Fabulous, which is going to open in the West End in London, produced by Tony Award winning producer Stephen Levy as soon as COVID allows audiences to come back. And it is a romantic comedy. And it's a lot of fun.
1: I've known you as a political person, I've known you as a media person. I have followed with great interest your writing and your thinking on military events and particularly on in information warfare. And you're also this literary person. How do you sort of balance all these different parts of your life?
4: <laughs> well, like you, I enjoy writing. I think people like you and I, knew are impelled to write. You and I share so many interests from national security to science fiction. And I just enjoy writing. And The funny thing is, though, that for my performing arts writing, I've written two movies that are likely to go this year. I tend to write comedy and fiction. And of course, national security is anything but funny. But I enjoy doing it. It's entertaining. I've just started on Facebook for anybody who wants to follow it. a new column, episode three I'll do today called uh, The Emma Chronicles. Emma is our labradoodle, and it's a humor column about my friendship with my dog.
1: I didn't know this until we were getting ready to do this conversation. But in addition to your law degree from Tulane, uh, you went to Cambridge to Trinity College. What was that experience like after an American university?
4: Extraordinary. Cambridge is unique. It's hard to explain to people that really haven't been there. The level of the students is remarkable. It's a very cosmopolitan student body, it's very diverse. You have two requirements. When you first day I got there, my tutors summoned me and they said, you will meet our academic standards, but you are just as expected to contribute to the life of the university. And so the social life of the university, which is grouped around different societies, which are subject matter driven. It's the law society. I was a member of the Cambridge University Conservative Union, which was linked to the Conservative Party. The Prince of Wales was in footlights when he was there. He was at my college there are any number of different things. And it's really an exhilarating experience. And I had a wonderful time. I had to come home in the middle of my second year to go on active duty in the army because I was supposed to be sent to Vietnam. They decided at the very last minute not to send us because they were throwing all the regular army officers out and they decided they wanted to keep them. So they got rid of all the reservists. But the time that I, the year and a half that I had there was wonderful.
1: As I understand it, it's both in Cambridge and Oxford are routinely rated as two of the top universities in the world. But their whole approach to how you learn and how you study is dramatically different than the American model. How did you adjust to that experience? Well,
4: I loved it. The Cambridge model is aimed at inspiring you how to think, whereas the American model is more of a black letter thing. They want you to learn facts and to learn specific things about whether it's books or law, things like that. Cambridge isn't designed that way. It's designed to teach you to express yourself both verbally and in writing and to just think about problems.
1: Now, you came back from there and you ended up doing a lot of different things. You were cited by Roll Call as one of the top political consultants in the United States. And I know from my own experience with you, you're amazingly creative, helped enormously in my campaigns. Talk a little bit about your political consulting career.
4: A lot of fun. None more fun than having the opportunity to work with you. I've always enjoyed politics. I've been interested in politics. I've been interested in basically two things since I was 12 years old. One is politics and the other is movies and film and writing. And I loved, as you know, the give and take with candidates. I enjoyed writing and producing television commercials, but I enjoyed the strategic discussions that I had. And I'm a Republican, and so it was a lot of fun to work with you so that we could win a Republican majority, which I have every confidence that we're going to get back in 2022 and strengthen in 2024.
1: I've also noticed that you actually advised heads of state in South Korea, Greece, and Bermuda. That's a pretty wide cultural range.
4: (laughs) It is. You know, I'll tell you one funny story about Korea. I did Lee Lee Hoi Chang's race, who was the former chief justice of the Supreme Court. And the Koreans are very formal. Everybody wears a dark suit, white shirt, dark tie. And they addressed Lee. Lee is the last name although they say he's Lee Boy-Cheng, but Lee is really the last name, as the chairman. And the meetings, we met at nine o'clock and at five o'clock every day. And the meetings were very formal. And finally, I said, you know, we cannot do political strategy this way. And they said, well, what do you mean? What do you do in America? I said, well, in America, everybody takes off their coat, they loosen their tie, they roll up their shirts, and it's a real free-for-all discussion. And they said, oh, that's not the way we do it in Korea. I said, I understand, but that's just the way you have to do strategy for it to work. So the next morning, we got up and they brought us up to the chairman's suite. And everybody stood up and bowed in formal greeting. Then everybody took off their coats, took off their ties, rolled up their sleeves. And for one hour, we had the kind of discussion you and I would have where anything goes. At the end of the hour, everybody stood up, rolled down their sleeves, put their ties back on and put their jackets up. We all bowed and that was the end of the session. So (laughs) there are cultural differences that really matter. Greece was a lot of fun. We had a bipartisan team and I did the Satake's race. His son, who is now the prime minister, is a friend of mine and actually wanted me to do his campaign this time, but it just didn't work out for me to be able to do it. I enjoyed working abroad, but I'll tell you, one thing that's interesting is that there's a saying that we have here, which is, Paul is a Paul is a Paul. And even though there are cultural differences, politicians are sort of cut from the same cloth. And it kind of makes me wonder why in national security, we don't have more former members of Congress or the Senate as ambassadors, because they actually would be much better suited for dealing with heads of state in other countries than foreign service officers would be they have a much better feel for politics and for the kinds of pressures that motivate the decisions that heads of state have to make.
1: Hi, this is Newt. We have serious decisions to make about the future of our nation. Americans must confront big government socialism, which has taken over the modern Democratic Party, big business, news media, entertainment, and academia. In my new book, Defeating Big Government Socialism, Saving America's Future, I offer strategies and insights for everyday citizens to save America's future and ensure it remains the greatest nation on earth. It is a must-read for any concerned citizen. Here's a special offer for my podcast listeners. You can pre-order my book, Defeating Big Government Socialism, right now at gingrich360.com slash book and the book will be shipped directly to you when it comes out on July 12th. Don't miss out on this special offer to pre-order my new book today. Go to Gingrich360.com slash book to order your copy now. Order it today at Gingrich360.com slash book.
0: From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast
1: is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, We've summoned something from this board.
2: This is Uncanny USA.
3: He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed.
0: Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring.
3: Download from the app and Google Play Stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play.
2: The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The campaign moment podcast from the Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the campaign moment right now, wherever you're listening.
1: In addition to your political background, which is, you know, for many people, that would be a career. But you've really gotten deeply involved in information warfare and the whole way in which the world has been changing. And I noticed that in a recent National Interest article, that you wrote called Russia Should Have Learned from Napoleon. You argue that, and this is kind of ironic, that Putin should have really thought about Napoleon's failed invasion of Russia in 1812 before he decided to invade Ukraine. Expand on that.
4: Well, I think it's really true. Napoleon was a very amazing figure in many ways, but he had war lust. And he went through different phases in his life. The Napoleon who won the Battle of Austerlitz, which was an extraordinarily brilliant exercise in military tactics and strategy, was a very different person than the Napoleon who decided to invade Russia. By 1812, Napoleon had become fat and lazy and he was sloppy. And he did not have a real strategy other than the idea of getting to Moscow. He did not provide... For the logistical support for what was a very large army, he went to Russia with six hundred thousand people. All the armies that he commanded, where he won his famous battles, whether it was at Jena or Austerlitz or other places, were relatively small armies where he had seventy to roughly a hundred thousand people and He was able to more or less maintain line of sight control over what they were doing and That isn't what happened in Russia; they just went into Russia, and the thing went wrong from the very beginning. Their logistics were an absolute debacle, and that destroyed morale. It cost the lives of a lot of the animals that were part of the supply train. People got sick and died from illness. By the time they really started to fight, things went wrong. Then in addition to that, he made two extraordinary political mistakes. The first was that when he went there, he didn't free the serfs. He should have done that. He should have embraced them. They might very well have joined him. They had no particular love for the Tsar. And the second thing was a matter of statecraft. He had the opportunity to ensure that Poland had its independence and had their support. And he didn't do that. And so he didn't have anything going for him. And so finally, when he went into battle, he went into battle with troops that were demoralized, they were hungry, they were fighting disease. And his strategic impulses just really weren't that good. Kutuzov, who was the Russian commander, was not Julius Caesar, not Alexander the Great, but he was a very competent commander who understood Russia and just backed up and gave these people space. It was the converse of what we have seen in Ukraine, where Putin and his secretary general of the armed forces, Valery Gerasimov, and a few other people devised a very bad strategy, completely misjudged their opponents and have just dug in. And I think that Ukraine is likely to win this, providing we get sufficient military support to the Ukrainians and we do so fast enough. I respect Senator Rand Paul, but he should not have interposed an objection to getting supplies to the Ukrainians. Time really matters in that war. But the funny thing about it is, I think that Ukraine's likely to win it. The Russian army isn't much better than Saddam's army was. All the generals that I talked to, and there was a group of us that I'm friends with, and also that I interviewed for my book, like Mark Kimman and Frank Kearney and Spider Marks and Jim Stravitas and people like that, all of whom are top shop generals, all of us thought that Ukraine would be unable to resist the Russian army. We gave it about three or four weeks. And I think, by the way, in fairness to Biden, who I think has done some good things and some bad things in handling this war. One of the reasons they held back is they didn't expect them to be able to resist the Russians either. I think the second, after, say, three or four weeks, it became clear that they were going to be able to do it, I would like to have seen us expedite the kinds of arm supplies that we're now giving to the Ukrainians. And I think that would have made a difference.
1: Are you surprised at the decisive imbalance between these modern systems of javelins and drones and things? that on a cost-exchange basis are so inexpensive compared to the vehicles they're taking out that it seems to me it may be changing the whole equation of how you think about armored warfare.
4: It is changing the equation about what's going on, and that change is going to accelerate, especially as we think about preparing ourselves to deal with China, which has a sophisticated army and sophisticated armaments. The problem with the Russian army is it's trying to refight World War II. We're fighting a 1944 army with 2,022 weapons, and there's an enormous imbalance in that. We're seeing reports, for example, of Russian planes that have been shot down that have GPSs taped to the front dials of the airplane. The artillery shells are what we call dumb shells. You just fire the shells and hope they hit. Our shells can be smart weapons. We can guide these things. The javelins and the stingers have completely changed. The utility of tanks, which are coffins for people in modern warfare. If you gave me a choice between having an army of drones and an army of tanks, I'll take the drones any day.
1: And that's a genuine revolution in capabilities.
4: Yeah, and wait until we go to the next stage of air wars, where we've got to shift away from fixed platforms that are very expensive, whether you consider them aircraft carriers or a base in Guam, and we begin using unmanned vehicles that are not expensive to produce. We can produce them in mass quantities. They're animated by artificial intelligence. And you can force China to have to disperse its forces rather than to use the mass that it has, which would be a strategic advantage if you let them have it. The nature of warfare is changing.
1: You also have things that you could never have predicted, like Elon Musk deciding to basically give Ukraine an internet-based system from space which I'm sure the Russians were just stunned by.
4: That's right, and you know the funny thing is the Russians are just using their cell phones. Their encrypted system didn't work. The Ukrainians are inside their system, which is one of the reasons they're able to target and take out the generals and the colonels. I mean, they have a system that depends upon top-down command and all their commanders are being killed.
1: The targeting of, of generals is unlike anything I can remember ever seeing.
4: There's nothing like it. It's unprecedented in warfare. This war is changing the rules of warfare, and information warfare plays a critical role, by the way, in what's going on. It's not just about armed conflict.
0: From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast
1: is going on a road trip. I thought...
0: Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity Voice Remote.
3: The best conversations I have with my colleagues are the ones that happen when no one is looking, when we're not 100% sure yet what to write.
4: Hopefully, having conversations like this can help you figure out your own point of view. That's kind of our job as Washington Post opinions columnists. I'm Charles Lane, deputy opinion editor.
3: And I'm Amanda Ripley, a contributing columnist. We're gonna bring you into these conversations on a new podcast called Impromptu.
4: Follow Impromptu now, wherever you listen.
1: Your new book, The Corporate Warrior, is the fifth book you've authored. And if you go back, A lot of what you've written about has been on strategic communication. I mean, you wrote Persuasion and Power, the Art of Strategic Communication in 2012. You wrote The Architecture of Cybersecurity, How General Counsel, Executives, and Boards of Directors Can Protect Their Information Assets in 2017. You wrote Information Warfare, Forging Communication Strategies for 21st Century Operational Environments. So the corporate warrior comes really on top of a decade of really working and thinking about the nature of the modern battlefield, the nature of communications. And you then went out with the extraordinary range of contacts you have and talked to a whole range of retired admirals and generals and senior officers about what they thought the lessons were and how it applied to it. Who are some of the military leaders you interviewed for this new book, The Corporate Warrior?
4: Well, I had the good fortune to know and be friends with some of the best generals and admirals that we've had. Admiral Jim Stravitas was the Supreme Allied Commander of Europe. He is an amazingly talented people. All of these people, by the way, had distinguished military careers and have now gone into business. So they were well qualified to talk about the application of military strategy, precepts, and views of leadership to the business world. Jim Stravitas, who wrote the introduction to the book, was great. Spider Marks, whom you see on CNN talking about Ukraine. General Mark Kimmet, who was the deputy commander for the coalition in Iraq. He's the person who brilliantly handled the aftermath of the Abu Ghraib debacle. Just an incredible individual. Admiral Bobby Inman, who was the legendary head of the National Security Agency. It's funny, he didn't really want to give an interview And another one of my friends who we interviewed, Greg Treverton, who was the chairman of the National Intelligence Council, which is the CIA's think tank, persuaded him to do it. We had a blast. He was very entertaining. And I think he won't mind my telling you one story that you may not know, but I think tells us more about Ronald Reagan than almost anything I can imagine. He said one day he and Frank Carlucci, who was the secretary of defense, got a call to please go over to the White House and talk to the president. So they showed up. And Reagan, a very fairly brief meeting, and Reagan said, You know, I've been thinking about this, and I think this nation's security requires the very best intelligence apparatus that anybody can think of. So he looked at Admiral Inman and he said, Admiral, I want you to figure out what we need if we did everything possible and did it right. And then he turned to Carlucci and he said, Mr. Secretary, your job is not only to get them the money, but then to hide it so that Congress can't take it away from them. And that's what they did. And it takes a Ronald Reagan to do that. I often think about how the Ukraine war might've turned out or how it might've been conducted had Reagan been the president right now. I think it would have been very different. I actually do not think that we would have had a war. I think that Reagan would have been able to work this out in a way that would have intimidated the Russians. And at the same time, probably satisfied the security interests of both the West and Russia, which could have been done, in my opinion.
1: What led you to decide that the corporate warrior was your next big assignment?
4: I was interested in how the military's precepts of strategy and leadership could be applied to the business world. As you know, commercial advertising thinks in terms of creative images and creating a feeling about a product to motivate you to buy it. That has really very little place in the way that we think about strategy for the military. And so I was interested in doing a study to see how you could apply one to the other and what difference that it would make. And the book consists of a series of stories to show how a lot of startup entrepreneurs like Jeff Reed, who started Harry's Razors, or the founder of Under Armour, or a lot of the other unicorns thought about their problems and how they overcame them. And I also was very interested in how people who had standing, like Steve Jobs, dealt with real crises. They were about to go bankrupt in 1984. This is a great story. And he commissioned this television commercial, which is famous. It's a takeoff on the book 1984. And he commissioned Ridley Scott, the Academy Award-winning film director, to make the ad. It cost $1 million in 1984. And he brought it over to a marketing company to test. And he went over to get the results. And they looked at him with long faces. And they said, gee, Mr. Jobs, we don't know how to say this. But this ad bombed with all of our focus group testing. And we think that if you air this ad, you're going to be wasting your money. He was going to air it on the Super Bowl. Well, of course, that did not amuse Jobs. So Jobs said, well, I know what I'll do. I'll go get support from my board. Calls a board meeting, shows them the ad, waits for the standing ovation. Silence. And finally, somebody says, Stephen, have you lost your mind?'" If you run this ad, you'll spend millions of our dollars. We're going to go bankrupt. This is going to be a disaster. Jobs had the vision and the strength of purpose to stare them all down and say, No, I think what I'm doing is right and we're going to do it. And he did it. Within one week, Macintosh had sold a quarter of a million computers. And the ad itself changed the way people looked at advertising. That's what leadership is really all about. It's about building a culture that's rooted in strong values of integrity and hard work and discipline and loyalty and excellence. And so you have to put together a strong culture, a strategy that develops a vision of what success looks like, and then you have to put together a strategic plan that you then execute in a very disciplined way. And that's, generally speaking, not what a lot of people in business do.
1: When you started thinking this through, was there anything that particularly surprised you?
4: I think that the thing that interested me was how you could start with nothing as a lot of the unicorn companies did and apply imagination and energy and without a lot of capital to spend on advertising, come up with resourceful ways to get the word out about what you were selling and to turn a company that had basically no value into a billion-dollar company. And how these entrepreneurs do that is fascinating. I think the other thing that was interesting too, and I talk about this, is the importance of asking the right questions. We didn't do that when the Eagle Claw Iranian Prisoner Rescue Expedition came up, and NASA didn't do that properly when the Challenger disaster happened. You have to ask the right questions to get the right answers. And very often that doesn't happen.
1: Do you think it doesn't happen because they don't think of the right questions or because they're afraid of the answers?
4: More often, they just don't think of the right questions. Preparation is everything, and you have to really think. Strategy requires thinking. You have to figure out, again, what is it that you want to accomplish, and what strategies will get you there, what tactics or operations will get you there, what metrics will enable you to determine whether or not you've been successful.
1: You have a unique take in the corporate warrior in arguing that the Taliban's quick defeat of the Afghan government after the U.S. departure from Afghanistan in 2021. I'm quoting here, the product of cutting-edge information warfare that capitalized on social media and every other form of communication. I don't think I've seen anybody else take this approach and think about it this way. What do you really mean by that? What is it that the Taliban was doing right?
4: They understood that the government of Afghanistan did not have any legitimacy. It wasn't popular. It was a centralized government and a culture that historically had been devolved down to a provincial and a village level. And the government was never able to provide security to the people. So there was no popular support for the government. And then Ghani, who was the president, made the strategic mistake of splitting up all of his forces so that the army, although numerically there were a lot of people, they were basically stationed at checkpoints and at small posts throughout the country. So they had no real strength. And the Taliban used social media to communicate with them. And they said, we have you outgunned and outnumbered. Your government is falling. And either you can live and have safety with your families or we'll kill you. And by the way, we'll also kill your families. They also targeted Air Force pilots and assassinated them to send the message that nobody was safe and that the Air Force couldn't save you. And then they infiltrated Kabul so that they were in a position to, again, send a message on the streets to people that fighting there would be a useless endeavor. And it all worked. Ghani fled the country, unlike Zelensky in Ukraine, and the army caved. But the other thing, too, I think that's important, and it's a lesson for this country, is that we trained the Afghan army to fight like the American army. And our military depends upon combined arms warfare with a heavy emphasis on being able to use air power to support ground operations. That was not a war that the Afghan army had any possibility of executing once we left. So everything we did and everything the government of Afghanistan did failed, and virtually everything that the Taliban did, particularly in using information warfare, worked. They basically used Sun Tzu's idea, which is that if you know yourself and you know your enemy, You can win without fighting. And to win without fighting is the supreme art in warfare. And they proved it was true.
1: When you look at both Vietnam and Afghanistan, I mean, we were in Afghanistan for 20 years. Why were we so unable to design a winning strategy?
4: I don't think that Afghanistan, in the way that we conducted it, was a winnable war. The culture of Afghanistan was hostile to foreign troops, a war like that inevitably was going to kill a lot of civilians, which was going to alienate the population. We supported a centralized government when the culture, even under the king, was devolved down to a local level. And there just was nothing backing up the government of Afghanistan. What amazes me is that the U.S. government, through one president after another, never seemed to do that. I mean, we went into Afghanistan, remember, to get bin Laden. We had civil relations with the Taliban in, say, 2000 before 9-11. We didn't like the government. They didn't have our values, but we weren't hostile to them, and they weren't hostile to us. The mission changed, and that goes to the heart of understanding what it is you want to accomplish when you go into a situation, and then how are you going to get out of it? And we never saw that kind of thinking from anybody.
1: You know, and I think that's a good piece of advice for the corporate warrior that you're reaching out to with your book, and that is they need to understand what they're trying to accomplish. They need to understand the limitations of the world they're operating in, and they need to be flexible and learn. The world's bigger than we are.
4: You know, there's a theory about business called a blue ocean strategy, which is that if you're going into an industry, Kevin Fleck did this with Under Armour, you see who the competition is. You see what part, what space within an industry doesn't have any competition. Well, Nike and others were selling shoes and had one part of that industry, but there was another part for the kinds of sweatshirts that he was selling for which there was no competition. And so he did what special operations did. He was adaptable, flexible, and agile. And so he moved right into, as it were, the blue ocean space of that and was able to capitalize in it. Warby Parker has done the same thing with eyeglasses. There's a lot of eyeglass companies that you get advertisements from that have done the same things. There's just one company after another that has understood that. And that's strategy. That's not coming up with neat advertising.
1: I want to thank you for joining me. And I want to let our listeners know we're going to have a link to your new book, The Corporate Warrior, Successful Strategies from Military Leaders to Win Your Business Battles, on the show page at newsworld.com. I think somewhere between your opera, your play, and your movies, you're going to have to come back. we we'll have to have a totally different conversation someday just about James Farwell and the cultural world.
4: <laughs> I'd love to.
1: Thank you so much, James.
4: My pleasure. Thank you.
1: I want to thank my guest, James Farwell. You can get a link to The Corporal Warrior on our show page at newtsworld.com. Newsworld is produced by Gingrich360 and iHeartMedia. Our executive producer is Garnsey Slum. Our producer is Rebecca Howell, and our researcher is Rachel Peterson. The artwork for the show was created by Steve Penley. Special thanks to the team at Gingrich360. If you've been enjoying Newtworld, I hope you'll go to Apple Podcast and both rate us with five stars and give us a review so others can learn what it's all about. Right now, listeners of Newt's World can sign up for my three free weekly columns at Gingrich360.com newsletter. I'm Newt Gingrich. This is Newt's World.
3: Zumo Play.
0: work.